Well, Billy Yank, this is sure shaping up to be a grand old Christmas time. Much better than the Christmas of 1862. All I got that year was dysentery. <laughs> and in the spirit of the season, I got you something. It's not a bomb, is it? No, no, no. It's a throwback to the old days. You remember, Christmas is during the war. I know we normally give you Federal's good southern tobacco, but I heard you quit smoking recently, so... Wow, it's nicotine gum. That's actually really sweet, thank you. You know, I actually got you something too. Um, it's way better than that chicory crap you guys drink. Real coffee, thank you, sir. And I went ahead and uh, brewed a cup so you could enjoy it right away. Mmm, delicious. Oh, oh, you're, you're spiking it, oh, okay. So that's, uh, that's a lot of booze. The whiskey purifies the excrement from the coffee. Much healthier that way. Amen. And Alex, to look this up, well, my ancestor was not only a great Confederate Civil War soldier of a hero in his diary, and I, I was marching for Arkansas while we were covered in a Union cavalry. We tried to stop them, but I bent down almost everything. My home is gone, my black friends is not slaves, and my new I know how to be found my wife's spotty. Is this Chris Hattie as black as I am? Us mellow being burnt and ready, just was fussing on them crowd of 1863. And if you don't believe me, why don't you go back to Washington or California or whatever Yankee state you please? Secondly, Lincoln Axe. Come on, buddy, sober up. We've got a new episode to film. Unless, of course, you're ready to finally concede that it was really about slavery after all. Never! It's so sad that Northerners still pretend the war was about slavery. They never want to talk about the tens of thousands of blacks who signed up to fight in the Confederate Army. Well, I don't know about Northerners, but historians have been perfectly willing to talk about black Confederates ever since that myth first originated in the 1970s. And they're in agreement as the venerable Civil War historian Gary Gallagher put it. The, the black Confederate movement, which, as I said earlier, is demented, is, is an effort to get the Confederacy right on race retrospectively, and you just need to stop that. Anybody who's trying to do it, just stop it. Stop it right now. That historian is a revisionist and a liar. Over 114,000 black Confederate soldiers died defending their homes and families from a mostly white Yankee army, as this Facebook meme clearly demonstrates. Okay, well, everything about that is wrong, but it is true that tens of thousands of black men did accompany Confederate armies and supported their war effort. It's just that, don't say it, the majority of these men, he's gonna say it, were slaves. 
either impressed by the Confederate government to perform manual labor or brought by their wealthy owners to war to carry out menial tasks in camp, like cooking, cleaning clothes, or transporting supplies and provisions. A few free black men enlisted in the Confederate army as cooks, teamsters, and musicians, but they were certainly not soldiers. Their white brethren would have made that distinction abundantly clear to them. After all, for most of the war, it was forbidden by Confederate law for black men to serve as soldiers. Yes, in 1861, a law was passed in the Confederate Congress that banned slaves from enlisting. Supply issues were chronic, and the weapons were needed for white soldiers. Despite the eagerness of the black soldiers, a decision had to be made. Consequently, the black soldiers decided to aid the white soldiers in the camps, serving as clerks, cooks, mending clothing, as well as caring for the wounded and sick. You're just making shit up now, aren't you? Yeah, you got me. Hey. Still, as a New Orleanian, you ought to know better. Here's a photograph of the first Louisiana native guard, a regiment of black confederates who volunteered to serve in New Orleans in the spring of 1861. That's not the first Louisiana native guard. That's the 25th Regiment of United States Colored Troops, in a photograph taken in Philadelphia. That image, by the way, was subsequently used as a recruitment poster to try to encourage Northern blacks to enlist in the Union Army. But you are right. The 1st Louisiana Native Guard was an all-black militia unit in Confederate New Orleans. But they're the exception that proves the rule. As I've said repeatedly in my many videos about New Orleans history, race relations were different here than in the rest of the South. During slavery, we had a large and unusually prosperous population of free people of color, many of whom were of mixed race and had family ties to local white aristocrats. And lots of them also owned slaves. Yes, exactly. So we really shouldn't be terribly surprised that they volunteered their services to the Confederacy. Besides, there was a precedent here. Free black militias had fought alongside Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. Despite all that, the state still stymied their efforts to serve in a combat role. Uh, Louisiana law limited membership in the militia to free white males capable of bearing arms, and all the first Louisiana did was go out on parade a few times. And though surviving a New Orleans parade can often make you feel like a combat veteran, this unit never saw any real action. They were quickly disbanded by the state government, only to be reformed in April of 1862 when the United States Navy was threatening New Orleans. But after Confederate General Mansfield Lovell abandoned the city, the first Louisiana gave up without a fight. Interestingly, those same men then offered their services to Benjamin Butler, the military governor of the Union occupiers of New Orleans. As Butler's biographer James Parton explained, So General Butler called on Africa, not upon the slaves, but upon the free colored men of the city, whom General Jackson had enrolled in 1814. He sent for several of the most influential of this class, and conversed freely with them upon this project. He asked them why they had accepted service under the Confederate government, which was set up for the distinctly avowed purpose of holding in eternal slavery their brethren and kindred. They answered that they had not dared to refuse, that they had hoped, by serving the Confederates, to advance a little nearer in equality with whites, and that they longed to throw the weight of their class into the scale of the Union, and only asked an opportunity to show their devotion to the cause with which their own dearest hopes were identified. The General took them at their word. Though General Butler took these guys at their word, we probably shouldn't. The mixed-race free people of color of New Orleans had always viewed themselves as superior to and distinct from slaves and full-blooded blacks, so it's very likely that they were just telling Butler what he wanted to hear. These guys left no written records of this event, so their motivations will probably always remain a mystery. But historical context can give us some clues. New Orleans was the wealthiest and most strategically important city in the entire South, and the Confederate government had relegated pitifully few resources in manpower or materiel to defend it. 
though General Lovell would be blamed for basically allowing the Union Navy to capture the city, realistically, there was nothing he could have done to stop them. And after the occupation, even diehard secessionists had lost all hope that the Stainless Banner would fly over the Crescent City ever again. Faced with this hard truth, the men of the 1st Louisiana may have realized that they needed to kiss Butler's ring if they had any hope in maintaining their privileged social status. That may be true for that Juan Regiment, but how do you explain the photographs and records of blacks in the Confederate Army? Don't that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the army of our great and glorious Confederate States was as diverse as a college admissions photo? For instance, here we see Sergeant Andrew Chandler of the 44th Mississippi Infantry, together with his family servant, Silas. As you can see, Silas is armed and wearing a uniform. And look at how closely the men are sitting, their legs are touching. How can you deny the existence of black Confederate soldiers when faced with this overwhelming evidence? Let's get one thing straight here. Silas Chandler was a slave. Not a servant, a slave. That photograph was probably taken in August of 1861. Andrew Chandler, the 17-year-old son of a wealthy plantation owner, had just enlisted as a private in the Confederate Army and decided to take Silas with him to war. The weapons they're holding are almost certainly studio props. It was common for young volunteers after enlisting to have, like, tough-guy photos taken of them. It was also common for plantation owners to take a slave or two with them to war. Many of those slaves wore some kind of uniform, just as they had done in the Mexican War. But you are right about one thing, Johnny. Their pose is unusual. Most soldiers who are photographed with their camp slaves place themselves in positions of unquestionable dominance. This one definitely feels more buddy-buddy. Exacto mundo! This is because they were the best of friends. Silas was free to travel from the plantation in Mississippi to wherever Andrew was. Andrew wrote home on the 31st of August, 1862, that the Federals might take Silas. I greatly fear another raid. Don't let them catch Silas. Be sure to write when Silas gets home. Andrew was severely wounded at the Battle of Chickamauga. The doctors were prepared to amputate his leg, but Silas refused to allow them to perform the operation. Instead, he took a piece of gold to buy whiskey, which he used to buy a bottle of whiskey to bribe the surgeons for Andrew's release. He carried his master on his back and loaded him onto a boxcar bound for Atlanta and better medical care. The two remained friends for the rest of their lives. Well, that's bullshit, but it is true that after Andrew was injured at Chickamauga, Silas helped him get back to the family farm. Because he loved him. He may have. We don't know for a fact that he didn't. But I think a much more likely explanation would be Silas's love for his own wife and newborn son, who were enslaved back at the plantation in Mississippi. When you have the safety of your family to think about, then you do what your master says. If he says, come to war with me, you go. If he says, hold this shotgun and pose for a photo with me, you do it. If Silas had come home without Andrew, or God forbid, escaped to the Yankees, who knows what would have happened to his family. We have basically no wartime records written by camp slaves themselves, so everything we know about them is filtered through the perspective of their masters. And even though stories of faithful slaves uh, firing at Yankees or carrying their wounded masters back to safety were incredibly popular in Confederate newspapers, any close reading of our sources reveals that these masters were downright deluded about the extent of their bondsmen's loyalty. 
Camp slaves ran away all the time, especially when the Confederate Army was in enemy territory or operating in close proximity to United States forces. In the summer of 1864, during Jubilee's raid of Pennsylvania, the slave of one Captain Robert Park escaped. Park later wrote that, He must have been tasked away or forcibly detained by some Negro worshipper, as he had always been prompt and faithful, and seemed much attached to me. Like, it never occurred to this man that his slave may have just been feigning his affections, biding his time, waiting for an opportunity to get the fuck out of there. You're derailing the conversation, Billy Yank. I don't deny that there were camp slaves. What I'm saying is that there were also black Confederate soldiers. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Oh, I have evidence. Namely, the many photographs of black rebels at veterans' events after the war. We even have records of their pensions. Yes, in the early 20th century, some former camp slaves did receive state pensions. But if you're going to use those pensions as evidence for the existence of black Confederates, then you're in for a shock. The pension applications make it very clear that these former camp slaves were not considered veterans, with lines like, What was the number of the regiment in which your owner served? The black men at Confederate veterans' events were also former camp slaves. Again, it wasn't terribly unusual for camp slaves to wear uniforms. Oh, come on! You can't weasel your way out of this one. Do you not believe the sensible and true avouch of your own eyes? If we Confederates loved racism so much, why did we invite these black men to reunions? Why did we adorn them in medals and honors? It's right there in black and white. You know, Johnny, it's really amazing. You're so knowledgeable about the Civil War. I ought to be. I fought in it. You and your fellow Lost Causers could rattle off the entire order of battle at Lookout Mountain by heart. You could tell me exactly how to hook up the shoulder boards on a general's frock. You know the number of mini balls that can fit into a standard issue cartridge box. So it's shocking how unbelievably ignorant you are of all of Southern history outside of those four little years of rebellion. <laughs> we shouldn't be at all surprised that former camp slaves were welcomed and honored at Confederate veterans' events, especially from the 1920s on. It was the height of Jim Crow, and an important justification for segregation was that black people were being oppressed for their own good. Unlike the Lost Cause myth of today, which tries to paint the Confederacy as some sort of egalitarian paradise, the Lost Cause myth of the early 20th century maintained that blacks had been better off as slaves and that the best hope for black Americans going forward was for them to defer to white authority. But during World War I, black Southern soldiers had been treated more or less as equals in Europe and saw firsthand that a desegregated society was possible. Consequently, upon returning home, they aggressively fought for their rights. Many white Southerners fought back, both with violence and propaganda. Not every black Southerner was quite so radical. In fact, their politics were pretty neatly divided along generational lines. Younger black people were avowed agitators. Older black people, including many former slaves, were content not to rock the boat. Their deference gave the white elite the exact ammunition they needed to counter the activist narrative. So when former camp slaves appeared at Confederate veterans' events, they were placed front and center as ideal examples of well-behaved blacks. Speaking of pensions, a 1921 article in the Confederate Veteran magazine noted that A new feature in the pension appropriation of Tennessee makes an allowance for pensions to the faithful Negroes who were in the war with their masters and served them to the end. Doubtless other states of the South will make similar provision for their old Negroes, whose loyalty under the circumstances showed a fine sense of honor not apparent in later generations of the race. 
Many of these black men also wanted to lay claim to the sense of martial masculinity that the white people of their generation enjoyed. And we can kind of see why that makes sense. We just put ourselves in their feet for a second. We can really understand that the book of Lord. Lord. Give me the strength to resist the Yankee invader. The violator of our homes and facades. Let me destroy him with facts and logic, Lord. I am your humble servant. I know that. Lord! Is that really you? It's a Christmas miracle! Yes, it's me. But I wasn't really born on Christmas. It's a vile pagan carnival, and everyone who celebrates it is going to hell. Is it my day to be with you, Lord? If so, I come to you with all the joy in my heart. No, Johnny. I have come to answer your prayers. Take this. It is a book of primary sources to counter Billy's arguments. So, thanks. Yes. Now go, my son. Go boldly into the combat. And remember, Catholics and Quakers worship the devil and should be killed. I'll remember, Lord. You are wise and strong, and I am very proud of you. Goodbye. The happy, faithful slave fit in neatly with the early 20th century's popular image of the Confederacy. This guy has no idea what he is talking about. There were black confederates, and no, they weren't just cooks or camp hands. From most accounts I've read, they were riflemen. Sources. First, on account by Dr. Lewis Steiner, the inspector of the U.S. Sanitary Commission. In his diary, he described observing our brave boys entering Frederick, Maryland in the invasion of 1862. This morning, the rebel army began to move from our town. The most liberal calculations could not give them more than 64,000 men. Over 3,000 Negroes must be included in this number. These were clad in all kinds of uniforms. Most of the Negroes had arms, rifles, muskets, sabers, bowie knives, dirks, etc. They were supplied, in many instances, with knapsacks, haversacks, canteens, etc., and were manifestly an integral portion of the Southern Confederacy Army. Steiner was right. Slaves were an integral portion of the Confederate Army. What he's observing here are camp slaves performing one of their many functions, carrying their master's weapons and equipment on a long march. Next, on account from one of Badan's sharpshooters, who saw a black confederate at the siege of Yorktown, Virginia. For a considerable time during the siege, the enemy had a Negro rifle shooter in their front who kept up a close fire on our men, and although the distance was great, yet he caused more or less annoyance by his persistent shooting. At one occasion, while at the advanced posts with the detail, the rider with his squad had an opportunity to note the skill of this determined darky with his well-aimed rifle. Yep, there are a few accounts by some United States soldiers that claim the exact same thing. Even if they correctly identified these soldiers as black, which at the distances we're talking about is a big if, it still wouldn't prove the existence of black Confederate soldiers. All it would demonstrate is that some camp slaves picked up their rifles and shot at Yankees, which is entirely believable, because some slaves were genuinely loyal, and in the heat of battle, who knows what could happen. And finally, in September of 1861, Frederick Douglass, of all people, wrote in his own newspaper that It is now pretty well established that there are at the present moment many colored men in the Confederate Army doing duty as real soldiers 
There were such soldiers at Manassas, and they're probably still there. How would Douglas know? Was he at Manassas? And you're ignoring the context here. Douglas was using these rumors of armed camp slaves to try to drum up support in the North for arming black regiments. As he goes on to say in that same article, Rising above vulgar prejudice, the slaveholding rebel accepts the aid of the black man as readily as that of any other. If a bad cause can do this, why should a good cause be less wisely conducted? We insist upon it that one black regiment in such a war as this is, without being any more brave and orderly, would be worth to the government more than two of any other. And that, while the government continues to refuse the aid of colored men, thus alienating them from the national cause and giving the rebels the advantage of them, will not deserve better fortunes than it is thus far experienced. He was less concerned about the veracity of those reports as he was about their political usefulness. And in any event, the idea that hearsay from Union soldiers are reliable sources is absurd, and you wouldn't even be bringing that up if there was a single piece of Confederate documentation to substantiate your claims. You know, there actually were black Confederate soldiers. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. He admitted it. I think we're done here. But only after the Confederate Congress had allowed the military to enlist black soldiers in March of 1865, just three weeks before the surrender at Appomattox. It was a desperate, last-ditch attempt to avoid defeat, but it didn't work. The Confederacy was doomed, in part due to the 200,000 black men who were already serving in the Union Army. By the end of the war, black soldiers made up 10% of the Union Army's manpower and had suffered more than 10,000 combat casualties. There were only ever a few hundred black Confederate soldiers in the spring of 1865, and they barely saw any action. And despite the public endorsement of Robert E. Lee, the idea to arm black men had been extremely controversial in the Confederacy for the better part of a year. The idea was first proposed by General Patrick Claiborne, who wrote in 1863 that, The measure will at one blow strip the enemy of foreign sympathy and assistance, and transfer him to the South. It'll dry up two of his three sources of recruiting. It'll take from his Negro army the only motive it could have to fight against the South, and it will probably cause much of it to desert over to us. The immediate effect of the emancipation and enrollment of Negroes and the military strength of the South would be to enable us to have armies numerically superior to those of the North, and a reserve of any size we might think necessary. It would instantly remove all the vulnerability, embarrassment, and inert meekness which result from slavery. Aha! A woke Confederate general! You seriously expect me to believe that the man who wrote that fought for slavery? He was one of the better ones for sure, but Claiborne by no means spoke for the Confederate leadership. In the first days of 1864, he shared his proposal with his commanding officer, Joseph E. Johnston. Johnston dismissed it, out of hand, and actually ordered Claiborne to stop spreading those dangerous notions. Nevertheless, a copy of the proposal ended up on the desk of Jefferson Davis. He actually also ordered it suppressed. But as the tide of war began turning against the South, Davis won to the idea, and in November of 1864, presented a watered-down version of it to Congress. Congress was furious. They rejected it. But the whole thing sparked off this huge and incredibly divisive public debate. For many Confederates, arming blacks betrayed the very cause for which they were fighting. The moment you resort to Negro soldiers, your white soldiers will be lost to you. The day you make soldiers of them is the beginning of the end of the revolution. If slaves will make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. In my opinion, the worst calamity that could befall us would be to gain our independence by the valor of our slaves instead of our own. The day that the Army of Virginia allows a Negro regiment to enter their lines as soldiers, they will be degraded, ruined, and disgraced. 
Of course, you'd think that in all of the Confederate records we have of the slave enlistment debate, including thousands of newspaper articles, somebody would have confirmed what Frederick Douglass and others had claimed, namely that there were already blacks serving as soldiers in the Confederate Army. But nobody did. To the contrary, they vehemently denied it. A Richmond war clerk named John Jones, who worked closely with the Davis administration throughout the war, had this to say about Northern rumors that there were black soldiers in the Confederate Army. This is utterly untrue. We have no armed slaves to fight for us. Oh, I almost forgot. I, I actually got you something else. Oh? It's a big one. Oh Lord, do my eyes deceive? A war of Northern aggression themed chess set. Why, there's old Moss Robert himself and President Davis. Yeah, Davis is the king and Lee is the queen, uh, but you know, Davis should really be the queen because of that whole rumor about how he was captured wearing one of his wife's dresses. Unfounded slander. Oh, and look, here's the tyrant Lincoln. He must be the king and Grant the butcher is the queen. Now that is fitting considering how Grant played the role of Desdemona in their production of Othello at that fort out west before the Mexican War. Yeah, okay. And for the role, he dressed as a woman. Yeah, I, I get the joke. Yeah. And the rook's got little cannons on him and everything. Thank you, Billy Yang. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too, my friend. Fancy a game? Let's do it. I'll whip you harder than at first Manassas. Why don't, uh, why don't you move first? After all, you did start the war. Ha ha, very funny.